Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, everybody. We have something special today. We are in between seasons right now. We are busily working on our rom-com season, but we need a couple of more months in order to get that all clean and shiny for you. And so in the meantime, what we are doing is releasing something special on our Patreon feed. We are going to be reading the other Austin novels, the Not Pride and Prejudice novels, and watching some of the adaptations of those and discussing them with brilliant people. Now, this content is usually going to be exclusive to Patreon, but this week we thought that we would entice you by dropping the first one of these conversations, my conversation with Professor Roxanne Eberly, who you all know the voice of, discussing Emma. If you enjoy this conversation between me and Roxanne about Emma, then you can go to patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod and join my conversation next week with Caitlin Hoffmeister talking about the 2020 Anna Taylor-Joy adaptation of Emma. You can also join Zoom conversations about the film adaptations of these Austin novels that we will be discussing. All of these perks are available at any tier level. We are trying to make it as affordable as possible for you, while also making sure that we have the time and resources to create the next season of Hot and Bothered. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope to see you on Patreon for the rest of these conversations. Hi, Roxanne. Hello, Vanessa. Okay, so I just I just reread Emma for the first time in 20 years. We are here to talk about it. I am wondering if you would feel comfortable doing like a quick recap of Emma for our listeners. Like if you had to recap Emma in 30 seconds, how would you do it? I think I my recap would, would be, it's the story of a young woman who believes she has everything and finds out over the course of the novel that there's much more to be had. And in the end, I think what she finds is a lot of those resources are internal. And maybe that's what she didn't have at the beginning. I really think it's very much a book about interiority and about understanding oneself and one's place in the community. I love that. So the novel starts with a wedding and on the day that Emma is sort of losing her governess. And I'm wondering, we can get more into the plot in a minute, but I'm wondering what you make of that as her arc, that it starts with the day that she loses her governess, and then it it ends with her marrying someone who's like 20, 20 years older than she is. <laughs> so like marrying kind of a father figure. Well, I mean, I think Emma is very much a novel about mourning and loss which is one of the reasons why I really like the Ramla Garai adaptation, which really 
reminds readers and viewers that the three main characters, arguably, with the exception of Knightley, are orphaned, that they don't have mothers. And the the loss of the mother is so profound. And so when I teach Emma, we often talk about like, why does Austin begin a novel at the moment she begins it? Mm -hmm. To my mind, she begins Emma with Mrs. Weston's marriage because it's like a reiteration of her loss of her mother. So in a way, it kind of opens with trauma. Now, how do you read the marriages at the end? There's some really interesting scholarship out there. Claudia Johnson is one of these scholars who argues that Knightley really is, in some ways, not so much a father figure, but a mother figure. That there's something about the marriage to Knightley that assists Emma in processing the trauma of loss of the mother. Mm. To my mind, that is a really interesting reading. There's one aspect of Emma, I think escapes it that I really love, which is that I don't think you ever get the sense when you're reading the novel that Emma is going to tell Knightley everything ever. The novel ends with her holding some secrets really close to her heart. And, you know, I love those scenes at the end of the novel where she keeps running away. (laughs) You know, she's, I'm going to run away and think about this problem by myself. No, thank you. You know, I, I need to be by myself. And so to my mind, I just think it's such a complex novel about female interiority. And I, I don't actually think it gives us all the answers. I think it's a, a novel that keeps a lot of secrets for its characters and specifically for, for Emma. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do just like a quick summary. I think arguably there are two plots going on. There are a million ways to argue what Emma is, but there's the the plot that we know about, which is Emma losing her governess, choosing a best friend in Harriet, trying to get Harriet married and doing a horrible job at matchmaking for Harriet and doing a pretty selfish job, right? Like not wanting Harriet to get married so that she can keep her best friend. And then ultimately Harriet rejecting Emma for complicated reasons and Harriet going and marrying the person she's supposed to marry and Emma falling in love with her brother-in-law, Mr. Knightley, and marrying Mr. Knightley. And then the second plot is the Mr. Churchill, Jane Fairfax plot which is Frank Churchill is Mrs. Weston's stepson. And so he looms large in the background. He finally shows up. Emma sort of thinks of him as a suitor. He causes all sorts of problems. He leaves town, and it turns out that this other woman who's in town, Jane Fairfax, and he were engaged the whole time and have been in love. How would you compare our, – our listeners know Pride and Prejudice – best at this point, I would like to think, because we spent a year reading Pride and Prejudice with them. How would you compare Emma to Pride and Prejudice? As a novel, I think Emma is far more interested in kind of the life of the community, which Mm -hmm. it's there, right, in Pride and Prejudice. But in Emma, I think the third plot is is about the world of Hartfield, this village and these homes and this group of people who spend so much time together. And so in that way, I think the community, and this is an original, lots of critics have talked about this, that the community has, is a character in Emma. It has a voice in Emma. That's one of the reasons why I really love teaching Emma now after resisting Emma for many years is that communal voice, you know, that maybe is reflected most in Miss Bates' 
but is everywhere in the novel and, and is almost posed against like that really powerful interior singular voice of Emma. So yeah. in my mind, that is something that I think is a sign for Austin of really growth as, as a writer. And I think it's a, a turn in her experiment as someone who's really interested in narrative voice. I just love yeah. that about Emma. And until I really started reading Emma for that communal voice and the way in which Emma's singular voice bounces off of it, I don't think I fully understood the novel. I didn't fully love the novel. It's sort of like Austin's version of Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway, yeah. right? Like Mrs. Dalloway is where I would argue Wolf figures out her like micro narrative voice and global narrative voice. And yeah. this is where Austin does that. Right. And I think you're referring to Wolf's diary entry where she talks about how in Mrs. Dalloway, she digs out caves behind the characters. Exactly. My favorite diary entry. I do think it's very similar um, to that. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy. Okay. Let's talk about Emma and Harriet. So Emma becomes friends with Harriet Smith. She sort of picks this like orphan who maybe has a tragic past and is a gentleman's orphan, but like is just like sort of friendless in the world. And Emma plucks her essentially because she's very pretty and decides that Mrs. Weston has taught Emma so much. She knows everything about the world. She's kind of going to be a big sister slash governess to Harriet who lives in sort of the town's polite gentry orphanage. And there's one moment in particular that is just like absolutely chilling to me, which is when Harriet gets a proposal from Mr. Martin, a farmer in town who Harriet likes a lot. And is like, this is by all accounts, a very nice man who can provide Harriet with a good life. And she brings the proposal to Emma and Emma's like, absolutely no, you shouldn't marry him. I know she like refuses to actually say that or whatever. But we get the interiority of Emma and Emma thinks to herself, like, I'm not ready to lose Harriet. It's just like, I'm not ready to lose my doll. And so I'm not going to let her sort of become a real live boy, right? Like, and I love, I love Emma. I love Emma. But this moment is horrifying. I think Austin Austin's two heroines from that mid-period that I think of, Emma and Fanny, are really not meant, I think, to be lovable by the reader. I think they are an attempt, especially Emma, to really represent a selfishness that's born out of grief, a selfishness that's born out of fear. You know, there's been so much great criticism that really talks about Emma attempting to wield like a masculine gaze or that this relationship is homoerotic in some way. And it definitely echoes like with Emma's need mm -hmm. and Emma's fear of loss. You know, is Emma ever going to find anyone that's really right for Harriet? Probably not, because then that would mean losing Harriet, which, as you pointed out, is not really the goal until the very end of the novel. Right. When Emma has someone else. When Emma decides that what Knightley can give her is something she needs and maybe it's what she hasn't had. You know, I just think it's a really complex novel about female identity and it's not meant to be easy and it's it's just meant to really be a challenge for the reader, which I think she deliberately wanted to do after creating Elizabeth who everybody loves, right? And so to my mind Emma's passion for Harriet is driven by fear, by loss that she kind of covers over with this 
very authoritarian kind of masculinist bossiness. So she's kind of like yeah. that moment, like kind of an incipient Lady Catherine de Bourgh. I mean, if yes. Emma doesn't watch out, right, that's who she will become. Yes. A spinster Lady Catherine de Bourgh is pretty much the ideal she talks to Harriet about when she says, you know, I'm never getting married. And so then the question for readers is when Emma gets married, is that a loss? Is that a gain? Does she gain enough to justify the loss of an independence, which also was threatening to her identity? The complication to me is the moment that I would argue the novel turns on, which is the moment where Emma insults Miss Bates. And that's where Emma is like, shit, I'm a bad person. It's not even like a horrible insult. Miss Bates is talking about how boring she is. And Emma essentially is like, yeah, you are really boring. And it's deeply offensive because of the difference of the positions of power between the two of them. And it's different to make a joke about yourself, right? Like it's very hurtful. But as far as like horrible insults go, it's really not that bad. And yet that is what causes Emma to be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be Lady Catherine de Berg. Yeah. I mean, I think that Emma as a novel and in its conclusions, it really does elevate kind of a notion of English civility and English politeness, that there's something about that. And, and in a way, it can be read as a deeply conservative novel yeah, because of the way in which Emma accepts the responsibility of being like Darcy. I mean, if you want to really talk about what's going on at the end of Emma, sometimes I like to compare it to the end of Pride and Prejudice when Darcy has to realize that he has to be less proud. Emma has to realize she has to be less selfish in order to be that ideal English landowner. So in a way, Emma learns how to be the best landlord, the best master, the best, you know, son, she has to learn how to be the best kind of Lady Catherine de Borg she can be. And she understands that Knightley is the one who allows her to be that best self. Yeah. And and why that is, I'm, I'm not sure we're ever really given a, an idea, except for I think it's really rooted in Austin's trust of romantic relationships that she's really interested in exploring at this point that are more like brother-sister relationships mm -hmm. because we also have Mansfield Park, in which we also have a similar kind of a long, that, that romance, is it starts as children in a way. Right. Knightley has known Emma since she was in diapers and used to sort of like bounce her on his knee. And he's the vehicle for her mother's lessons. He's the one who remembers her mother. He's the only one who talks about her mother. It's interesting because I agree with you. It's so conservative, right? It's like really obsessed with this idea of charity, but it's not about like helping people rise out of their station in any way or value them for their minds. But nightly, I would argue that nightly really respects people regardless of their class. And one of the reasons we're taught to respect or like signaled to respect nightly is that he genuinely wants to improve the conditions of the people who live on his land. Do you think of Knightley as a conservative character in that way? I think you're right. I think Knightley is the one who maybe, is strangely, is kind of the most subversive. Right. 
he does treat Harriet's uh, suitor as an equal. There's something about Knightley, even though he inhabits this ancient house, it seems to be on the cutting edge of a period of time, right? One thing to keep in mind is that this is a time of great change in agricultural farming methods, like it's the beginning right. of scientific farming, which seems to be something that Knightley is interested in, although typically of Austin, right? We don't get a lot of detail about that. So I do think Knightley is the model of kind of a modern landowner. And I think one of the things that happens in the text, right, is that you also see that change happening in the community with the rising families. And Emma has to figure out a way to accept change in her life, right? And she is so frozen in those opening scenes with her father. Emma is frozen in time. And so it requires, I think, the growth of the community for her to thought, for her to be open to kind of change and growth. And the person she really doesn't want to be like is Mrs. Elton. Like Mrs. Elton is in that text to show Emma how wrong she behaved when she was, quote unquote, mentoring Harriet. The one person Emma does not want to be is Mrs. Elton. Yeah. I love the way that Austin can diagnose a certain kind of person who we all know and just like sketch them out perfectly and they can just get under your skin and you're like, yep, I know this person. I know this person. Like it's so precise and just so cloying. And the one passage I always teach And I think it actually also is the most Wolfian passage in Austin is when Mrs. Elton goes and she's picking the strawberries and she starts off and she's, you know, it's a bucolic paradise. And then by the end, you know, my knees hurt. I want to sit down. It's too hot. I mean, it's just a stream of consciousness. You know, everyone's disgruntled. Everyone's hot. I personally hate picking strawberries. So it really resonates with me. Yeah, sure. That scene is just brilliant because you can say everyone is unhappy, which Austin does. But if you provide the running interior and exterior monologue of unhappy people out in the sun, then you've really done something. You've really done it. It's form and thought like interwoven. Okay, we have to talk about the ending because Austin and her happily ever afters. I have a theory that this is the happiest of Austin's endings because I think that what Lizzie wants, what a lot of the young women want in Austin is actually to not have to leave home and to like stay children. And Emma gets to not leave home. And we get the epilogue, like we get post the engagement. And like, I love the scene where... Emma is having Knightley read this letter and keeps interrupting, right? And like you kind of get a sense of what they're going to be like as a married couple. And -hmm. it's very sweet and like challenging each other and teasing. And so I really do think that this ending is the most romantic. I'm wondering what you make of that. I do think it's almost perfect narratively in that we have Austin, who I think was just a, a student of Shakespeare, giving us a perfect comedic ending with the three marriages. Yeah. And then the, and then also characteristic of a Shakespearean comedy, we have the one like misanthropic voice that pops up at the end with Mrs. Elton's comment that there wasn't enough lace, right? So, yeah. you know, given that Austin chooses to structure it as this ideal Shakespearean comedy, like this comic ending of three marriages, all appropriate, like in rank, I do think you can make that argument 
because it is everything Emma wants. I mean, the only way Knightley achieves that marriage is if Emma gets everything she wants, because that's (laughs) Emma. (laughs) Yeah, but you really do see the growth and the lack of selfishness, right? Like she wants to stay for her father, right? Like she can't leave her father. And she's also a brilliant caretaker of her father. She doesn't get sucked into his neuroses or impacted by his neuroses. And so has this perfect like distance. I don't know. I mean, for how heinous Emma is, it is very impressive to me how happy I am for her at the end. You know, I think Emma is in danger of becoming like her father, of freezing like her father, of of catering to him too much. She's so solitary and alone in it. And maybe the reason why Knightley is the right match is because he is also a caretaker and is also frantic about it. There's that really great scene where Emma's father and Emma's sister are starting to battle over the issue of like, where where's the best kind of spa to go to? And then Knightley's brother gets involved, John gets involved. And of course, he's a little bit more mean and, and more assertive and, and Emma fears for a father. And then Knightley pops up and says, you know, basically changes the subject. So there's something about them being a team. I, I don't think Austin wants anything to be too easy. I mean, I think you get the sense that the, the Knightleys, you know, Emma and Mr. Knightley, you get a sense of the labor involved in communal caretaking. And, and that is different from Pride and Prejudice, where, you know, Darcy just shows up and, you know, I just reread Longbourn. I just taught long. I'm teaching Longbourn this week. So, you know, I think of him the way Joe Baker describes him as this big, meaty, shiny, like Thor God kind of descending from the heavens. With Emma, you don't have that as much. It, it's more of like everyday life labor. And I really like that about the novel. So we have to wrap up. I just like, I need to ask some silly question. Like, do you have a favorite character, a favorite moment? One of your favorite moments, a favorite moment that we haven't talked about. I I love the scenes of like the women, just how they spend their time, which we don't get that much in Austin, like the games. And I also really love the scene where they do the close reading of the poem. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, is it about mermaids? Is it about sharks? And, you know, it's so silly. And yet, She's not any more wrong than Emma. The novel is kind of about mermaids and sharks and, you know, dangerous waters. So I think that's my favorite moment. Mm -hmm. I just think it's really funny and students really love it because, you know, they're always convinced they're reading a poem wrong. And of course, Mm -hmm. both women are reading the poem wrong. Neither. It's Mm -hmm. Emma's like, well, I know what this is about. And she doesn't. And so I love that moment. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I loved rereading this book and it feels like a hat trick. Like it's a miracle that she pulls this thing off. Yeah. It sits on a pin. And I mean, given that I, like, I literally didn't teach it the first time I taught all of Austin's novels. Liz, I was scared of it. I think maybe scared of how much Emma maybe reminded me of elements of myself. I didn't like very much. (laughs) But now I just, I adore it. I'm I started teaching it in two weeks and I'm really excited. Oh, have fun. I hope that your students love it. Thank you. Luck with it, you guys. Thank you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.